Proem to Children of the Ghetto by Israel Zangwill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Pretzelis in Santa Rosa, California. Proem not here in our london ghetto the gates and gabardines of the olden ghetto of the eternal city yet no lack of signs external by which one may know it and those who dwell therein its narrow streets have no specialty of architecture its dirt is not picturesque it is no longer the stage for the high buskin tragedy of massacre and martyrdom only for the obscurer, deeper tragedy that evolves from the pressure of its own inward forces, and the long-drawn-out tragicomedy of sordid and shifty poverty. Nevertheless, this London ghetto of ours is a region where, amid uncleanness and squalor, the rose of romance blooms yet a little longer in the raw air of English reality a world which hides beneath its stony and unlovely surface an inner world of dreams, fantastic and poetic as the mirage of the Orient where they were woven, of superstitions grotesque as the cathedral gargoyles of the dark ages in which they had birth. And over all lie tenderly some streaks of celestial light shining from the face of the great lawgiver. The folk who compose our pictures are children of the ghetto. Their faults are bred of its hovering miasma of persecution. Their virtues are straightened and intensified by the narrowness of its horizon. And those of our figures who have won their way beyond its boundary must still play their parts in tragedies and comedies tragedies of spiritual struggle, comedies of material ambition, that are the aftermath of its centuries of dominance, the sequel to that long cruel night in Jewry which coincides with the Christian era. If they are not the children, at least they are the grandchildren of the ghetto. The particular ghetto that is the dark background upon which our pictures will be cast is of voluntary formation. People who have been living in a ghetto for a couple of centuries are not able to step outside merely because the gates are thrown down, nor to efface the brands on their souls by putting off the yellow badges. The isolation imposed from without will have come to seem the law of their being but a minority will pass, by units, into the larger, freer, stranger life amid the execrations of an ever-dwindling majority. For better or for worse, or for both, the ghetto will be gradually abandoned till at last it becomes only a swarming place for the poor and the ignorant, huddling together for social warmth. Such people are their own ghetto gates. When they migrate they carry them across the seas to lands where they are not. 
into the hearts of East London there poured from Russia, from Poland, from Germany, from Holland, streams of Jewish exiles, refugees, settlers, few as well-to-do as the Jew of the proverb, but all rich in their cheerfulness, their industry, and their cleverness. The majority bore with them nothing but their phylacteries and praying-shawls, and a good-natured contempt for Christians and Christianity, for the Jew has rarely been embittered by persecution. He knows that he is in galut, in exile, and that the days of the Messiah are not yet, and he looks upon the persecutor merely as the stupid instrument of an all-wise providence so that these poor Jews were rich in all the virtues, devout yet tolerant, and strong in their reliance on faith, hope, and more especially charity. In the early years of the nineteenth century all Israel were brethren. Even the pioneer colony of wealthy Sephardim, descendants of the Spanish crypto-Jews who had reached England via Holland, had modified its boycott of the poor Ashkenazic immigrants, now that they were becoming an overwhelming majority. There was a superior stratum of Anglo-German Jews who had had time to get on, but all the Ashkenazic tribes lived very much like a happy family, the poor not as standoffish towards the rich, but anxious to afford them the opportunities for well-doing. The Schnorrer felt no false shame in his begging. He knew that it was the rich man's duty to give him unleavened bread on Passover, and coals in the winter, and odd half-crowns at all seasons, and he regarded himself as the Jacob's ladder by which the rich man mounted to paradise. But like all genuine philanthropists, he did not look for gratitude. He felt that virtue was its own reward, especially when he sat in Sabbath vesture at the head of his table on Friday nights, and thanked God in an operatic aria for the white cotton tablecloth and the fried sprats. He sought personal interviews with the most majestic magnates, and had humorous repartees for their lumbering censure. As for the rich, they gave charity unscrupulously, in the same oriental, unscientific, informal spirit in which the Dianim, those Kadais of the East End, administered justice. The Takif, or man of substance, was as accustomed to the palm of the mendicant outside the great synagogue as to the rattling picks within. They lived on Bury Street and Jury Street and Allgate, those aristocrats of the ghetto, in mansions that are now but congeries of apartments. Few relations had they with Belgravia, but many with Petticoat Lane and the Great Shawl, the stately old synagogue which has always been illuminated by candles and still refuses all modern light. The Spanish Jews had a more ancient shul, but it was within a stone's throw of the Duke's palace edifice. Decorum was not a feature of synagogue worship in those days, 
nor was the Almighty yet conceived as the holder of formal receptions once a week. Worshippers did not pray with bated breath, as if afraid that the Deity would overhear them. They were at ease in Zion. They passed the snuff-boxes, and remarked about the weather. The opportunities of skipping, afforded by a too exuberant liturgy, promoted conversation, and even stocks were discussed in the terrible longueur induced by the meaningless ministerial repetition of prayers already said by the congregation, or by the official recitations of catalogues of purchased benedictions. Sometimes, of course, this announcement of the offertory was interesting, especially when there was sensational schnoddering. The great people bid in guineas for the privilege of rolling up the scroll of the law, or drawing the curtain of the ark, or saying a particular kaddish if they were mourners, and then thrills of reverence went round the congregation. The social hierarchy was to some extent graduated by synagogual contributions, and whoever could afford only a little offering had it announced as a gift, a vague term which might equally be the covering of a reticent munificence. Very few persons called up to the reading of the law escaped at the cost they had intended, for one is easily led on by an insinuative official incapable of taking low views of the donor's generosity, and a little deaf. The moment prior to the declaration of the amount was quite exciting for the audience. On Sabbaths and festivals the authorities could not write down these sums, for writing is work, and work is forbidden. Even to write them in the book and volume of their brain would have been to charge their memories with an illegitimate, if not an impossible, burden. Parchment books on a peculiar system with holes in the pages and laces to go through the holes solve the problem of bookkeeping without pen and ink. It is possible that many of the worshippers were tempted to give beyond their means for fear of losing the esteem of the Shamus, a potent personage only next in influence to the President, whose overcoat he obsequiously removed on the great man's annual visit to the synagogue. The Shamus's eye was all over the shawl at once, and he could settle an altercation about seats without missing a single response. His automatic Omain resounded magnificently through the synagogue, at once a stimulus and a rebuke. It was probably a concession to him that poor men, who were neither seat-holders nor wearers of chimney-pot hats, were penned within an iron enclosure near the door of the building, and ranged on backless benches, and it says much for the authority of the Shamus that not even the Schnorrer contested it. Prayers were shouted rapidly by the congregation, and elaborately sung by the Chazan. The minister was vox et praeteria nihil. He was the only musical instrument permitted. 
and on him devolved the whole onus of making the service attractive. He succeeded. He was helped by the sociability of the gathering, for the synagogue was virtually a Jewish club, the focus of the sectarian life. Hard times and bitter had some of the fathers of the ghetto, but they ate their dry bread with the salt of humour, loved their wives, and praised God for his mercies. Unwitting of the genealogies that would be found for them by their prosperous grandchildren, old clo-men plied their trade in ambitious content. They were meek and timorous outside the ghetto, walking warily for fear of the Christian. Sufferance was still the badge of all their tribe. Yet that they were Jews who held their heads high, let the following legend tell. Few men could shuffle along more inoffensively, or cry, Old Clo! with a meeker twitter than sleepy soul. The old man crawled one day, bowed with humility and clo-bag, into a military muse, and uttered his tremulous chirp. To him came one of the ostlers, with insolent, beetling brow. "'Got any gold lace?' faltered sleepy soul. "'Get out!' roared the ostler. "'I'll give you the best prices!' pleaded Sleepy Soul. "'Get out!' repeated the ostler, and hustled the old man into the street. "'If I catch you here again, I'll break your neck!' Sleepy Soul loved his neck, but the profit on gold lace torn from old uniforms was high. Next week he crept into the mews again, trusting to meet another ostler. Clo, clo, he chirped faintly. Alas, the brawny bully was to the fore again and recognized him. You dirty old Jew, he cried, take that and that. Next time I seize you, you'll go home on a shutter. The old man took that and that and went on his way. The next day he came again. Clo, clo, he whimpered. What? said the ruffian, his coarse cheeks flooded with angry blood. Have you forgotten what I promised you? He seized Sleepy Soul by the scruff of the neck. I say, why can't you leave the old man alone? The ostler stared at the protester whose presence he had not noticed in the pleasurable excitement of the moment. It was a Jewish young man, indifferently attired, in a pepper-and-salt suit. The muscular ostler measured him scornfully with his eye. "'What's to do with you?' he said, with studied contempt. "'Nothing,' admitted the intruder. "'And what harm is he doing you?' "'That's my business,' answered the ostler, and tightened his clutch of Sleepy Soul's nape. "'Well, you better not mind it,' answered the young man calmly. "'Let go.' 
The ostler's thick lips emitted a disdainful laugh. "'Let go, do you hear?' repeated the young man. "'I'll let go at your nose,' said the ostler, clenching his knobbly fist. "'Very well,' said the young man. "'Then I'll pull yours.' "'Oh!' said the ostler, his scowl growing fiercer. "'You means business, does you?' And with that he sent Sleepy Sol staggering along the road, and rolled up his shirt-sleeves. His coat was already off. The young man did not remove his. He quietly assumed the defensive. The ostler sparred up to him with grim earnestness, and launched a terrible blow at his most characteristic feature. The young man blandly put it on one side and planted a return blow on the ostler's ear. Enraged, his opponent sprang upon him. The young Jew paralysed him by putting his left hand negligently into his pocket. With his remaining hand he closed the ostler's right eye, and sent the flesh about it into mourning. Then he carelessly tapped a little blood from the ostler's nose, gave him a few thumps on the chest, as if to test the strength of his lungs, and laid him sprawling in the courtyard. A brother ostler ran out from the stables, and gave a cry of astonishment. "'You'd better wipe his face,' said the young man, curtly. The newcomer hurried back towards the stables. "'Vait a moment,' said Sleepy Sol. "'I can sell you a sponge cheap. I've got a beauty in my bag.' There were plenty of sponges about, but the newcomer bought the second-hand sponge. "'Do you want any more?' the young man affably inquired of his prostrate adversary. The ostler gave a groan. He was shamed before a friend whom he had early convinced of his fistic superiority. Uh, "'No, I reckon he don't,' said his friend with a knowing grin at the conqueror. "'Then I wish you a good day,' said the young man. "'Come along, father.' "'Yes, my son-in-law,' said Sleepy Sol. "'Do you know who that was, Joe?' said his friend, as he sponged away the blood. Joe shook his head. "'That was Dutch Sam,' said his friend in an awe-struck whisper. All Joe's body vibrated with surprise and respect. Dutch Sam was the champion bruiser of his time. In private life an eminent dandy, and a prime favourite of His Majesty King George the Fourth. And Sleepy Sol had a beautiful daughter, and was perhaps prepossessing himself when washed for the Sabbath. "'Dutch Sam,' Joe repeated. Dutch Sam! Why, you've got his picture hanging up inside, only his dress tip-top. Well, strike me lucky! What a fool I was not to recognise him!" His battered face brightened. No wonder he licked me! Except for the infrequency of the more bestial types of men and women, Judea has always been a cosmos in little and its pugilists and scientists, its philosophers and fences, 
its gymnasts and money-lenders, its scholars and stockbrokers, its musicians, chess-players, poets, comic-singers, lunatics, saints, publicans, politicians, warriors, poltroons, mathematicians, actors, foreign correspondents, have always been in the first rank. Nihil alienum et se judeas putat. Joe and his friend fell to recalling Dutch Sam's great feats. Each outvied the other in admiration of the supreme pugilist. Next day Sleepy Sol came rampaging down the courtyard. He walked at the rate of five miles to the hour, and despite the weight of his bag, his head pointed to the zenith. "'Clo!' he shrieked. "'Clo!' Joe the ostler came out. His head was bandaged, and in his hand was gold lace. It was something even to do business with a hero's father-in-law. But it is given to few men to marry their daughters to champion boxers, and as Dutch Sam was not a Don Quixote, the average peddler or huckster never enjoyed the luxury of prancing gait and cock-a-whoop business cry. The primitive fathers of the ghetto might have borne themselves more jauntily had they foreseen that they were to be the ancestors of mayors and aldermans descended from Castilian hidalgos and Polish kings, and that an unborn historian would conclude that the ghetto of their day was peopled by princes in disguise. They would have been surprised to learn who they were, as to be informed that they were orthodox. The great reform split did not occur till well on toward the middle of the century and the Jews of those days were unable to conceive that a man could be a Jew without eating kosher meat. And they would have looked upon the modern distinctions between racial and religious Jews as the sophistries of the Meshemad or the missionary. If their religious life converged to the great shul, their social life focused on Petticoat Lane a long, narrow thoroughfare which, as late as Stripes Day, was lined with beautiful trees. Vastly more pleasant they must have been than the faded barrows and beggars of latter days. The lane, such was its affectionate sobriquet, was the stronghold of hard-shelled Judaism, the Alsatia of infidelity, into which no missionary dared set foot especially no apostate apostle. Even in modern days the new-fangled Jewish minister of the fashionable suburb, rigged out like the Christian clergyman, has been mistaken for such a meshamad, and pelted with gratuitous vegetables and elemicinary eggs. The lane was always the great market-place, and every insalubrious street and alley abutting it was covered with the overflowing of its commerce and its mud. Wentworth Street and Galston Street were the chief branches, and in festival time the latter was a pandemonium of caged poultry, clucking and quacking and cackling and screaming. Fowls and geese and ducks were bought alive, and taken to have their throats cut for a fee 
by the official slaughterer. At Purim, a gaiety, as of the Roman carnival, enlivened the swampy Wentworth Street, and brought a smile into the unwashed face of the pavement. The confectioner's shops, crammed with stuffed monkeys and bowlers, were besieged by hilarious crowds of handsome girls and their young men, fat women and their children, all washing down the luscious spicy compounds with cups of chocolate. Temporarily erected swinging candles bore a vociferous many-coloured burden to the skies. Cardboard noses, grotesque in their departure from truth, abounded. The Purim spiel, or Purim play, never took root in England. Nor was Haman ever burned in the street. But shalachmanos, or gifts of the season, passed between friend and friend, and masquerading parties burst into neighbours' houses. But the lane was lively enough on the ordinary Friday and Sunday. The famous Sunday fair was an event of metropolitan importance, and thither came buyers of every sect. The Friday fair was more local, and confined mainly to edibles. The anti-festival fairs combined something of the other two, for Jews desired to sport new hats and clothes for the holidays, as well as to eat extra luxuries, and took the opportunity of a well-marked epoch to invest in new everything, from oilcloth to cups and saucers. Especially was this so at Passover, when for a week the poorest Jew must use a supplementary set of crockery and kitchen utensils. A babel of sound, audible for several streets around, denoted market-day in Petticoat Lane, and the pavements were blocked by serried crowds going both ways at once. It was only gradually that the community was anglicised. Under the sway of centrifugal impulses, the wealthier members began to form new colonies, moulting their old feathers and replacing them by finer, and flying ever further from the centre. Men of organising ability founded unrivalled philanthropic and educational institutions on British lines. Millionaires fought for political emancipation tardily winning one by one the most elementary rights of citizenship. Ministers gave sermons in bad English. An English journal was started. Very slowly the conventional Anglican tradition was established. And on that human palimpsest, which has borne the inscription of all languages and all epochs, was writ large the sign manual of England. Judea prostrated itself before the Dagon of his hereditary foe, the Philistine, and respectability crept on to freeze the blood of the Orient with its frigid finger, and to blur the vivid tints of the East into the uniform grey of English middle-class life. In the period within which our story moves, only vestiges of the old gaiety and brotherhood remained. The full alfresco flavour was evaporated, 
and today they are all dead. The Takafim with big hearts and bigger purses, and the humorous Schnarrers who accepted their gold, and the cheerful, pious peddlers who rose from the one extreme to the other, building up fabulous fortunes in marvellous ways. The young mothers who suckled their babes in the sun have passed out of the sunshine. Yea, and the babes, too, have gone down with grey heads to the dust. Dead are the fair, fat women, with tender hearts, who waddled benignantly through life, ever ready to shed the sympathetic tear, best of wives and cooks and mothers. Dead are the bald, ruddy old men, who ambled about in faded carpet-slippers, and passed the snuff-box of peace. Dead are the stout-hearted youths, who sailed away to Tom Tiddler's ground, and dead are the buxom maidens they led under the wedding canopy when they return. Even the great Dr. Sequira, pompous in white stockings, physician extraordinary to Prince Regent of Portugal, lies vanquished by his lifelong adversary and the Baal Shem himself, king of Kabbalists, could command no countervailing miracle. Where are the little girls in white pinafores with pink sashes who brightened the ghetto on high days and holidays? Where is the beauteous Betsy of the Victoria Ballet? And where the jocund synagogual dignitary who led off the cotillion with her at the annual rejoicing of the law? Worms have long since picked the great financier's brain. The embroidered waistcoats of the bucks have passed even beyond the stage of adorning sweeps on May Day. And Dutch Sam's fist is bonier than ever. The same mould covers them all. Those who donated guineas, and those who donated gifts the rogues and the hypocrites and the wedding drolls, the observant and the lax, the purse-proud and the lowly, the coarse and the genteel, the wonderful chapman and the luckless schlemils, rabbi and diane and scheuchert, the scribes who wrote the sacred scroll and the cantors who trolled it off mellifluous tongues, and the betting men who never listened to it. The grimy Russians of the Capotes and the Earlocks, and the blue-blooded Dons, the gentlemen of the Mahamad, who ruffled it with swords and knee-breeches in the best Christian society. Those who needed the toothsome bowlers lie with those who ate them, and the marriage-brokers repose with those they mated. The olives and the cucumbers grow green and fat as of yore, but their lovers are mixed with a soil that is barren of them. The restless, bustling crowds that jostled laughingly at Rag Fair are at rest in the house of life. The pageant of their strenuous generation is vanished as a dream. They died with the declaration of God's unity on their stiffening lips, and the certain resurrection in their pulseless hearts 
and a faded Hebrew inscription on a tomb, or an unread entry on a synagogue brass, is their only record. And yet, perhaps, their generation is not all dust. Perchance, here and there, some decrepit centenarian rubs his purblind eyes with the ointment of memory and sees these pictures of the past, hallowed by the consecration of time, and finds his shrivelled cheek wet with the pathos sanctifying the joys that have been. End of Proem.